Welcome, welcome to another live edition of What's Left in Albany in the waning episodes. This program, I'm your host, Dan Platt, and this program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region, featuring discussions about local organizations, themselves and what they're doing. I also discuss local news and issues in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, opposing our neoliberal present and potential fascist futures, while promoting the build-out of a commons economy and a delegate of democracy, waging a clandestine insurgency against confusion and ignorance, as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for this city, we are going to find whatever's left. And I'm back with another bit of article reading. This is opinion and commentary, not journalism. <laughs> I'm reading the journalism, or at least what passes for it in this town. And I'm going to cover a hodgepodge of topics to kind of wrap up and also to touch on things I've already covered. So the latest in each of these issues, and that's sort of the thing about news in Albany, is it's always a continuous process. There's always more to, to do because information or whatever happens it happens piecemeal it happens in a trickle it could be very frustrating isn't it folks and that's how you know it's like a society it's so big and it can't it, can, it can't change fast it, it has to go at a glacial pace or or it can only happen one little piece at a time the good things the little islands of good things not so much when it you know if, if capital moves in things can happen so fast it changes you know we all get future shock because things are always changing so fast and as a, as a quote, uh, the Future Shock documentary that I love uh, with Orson Welles. The impact of Future Shock does not depend on the nature of its victims. They are everywhere. But everywhere in modern technological society, there are those who recognize the dangers and are turning toward the future. And shock from how fast things change in this ever fast-changing postmodern world. Speaking, you know, and fast-changing are certain institutions. So some are only a century old, you know, which is just... Let's go through the topics that I'm touching back on. So I've done a few episodes talking about 787. So I wanted to go over one of the big arguments, because I haven't really talked at length or any amount of time about why we should Boulevard make 
77 laced along downtown Boulevard. Now, I'm not one for highways, more road building in the first place. We should have mass transit. We should have transit that everybody can access and use and not just it's not just a matter of like everyone needs to own a car because car is what you need to access the uh, economic opportunity is called, right? That's why it was such a big deal when Oprah gave that room for women uh, cars is the means of economic prosperity. But why should our economic prosperity as individual citizens be tied to a consumer product that's made by some other big company? That's not economic independence of any kind. No, it is through the efficiency of mass transit because if, if you got to provide transportation to all or if everyone needs it, it needs to be done efficiency, efficiently. And right now, driving and cars and highways is the most inefficient way of moving people around one can imagine. Now, yes, it, it's the most individual freedom, but we could also have a lot of individual freedom if we had enough mass transit to the point where you can take it almost anywhere. You know, even the little roadside trail ways uh, in the burn to the small towns. You know, I there was a green in Ireland who was touting, you know, his big success of his uh, term was getting the rural bus, more rural bus lines, connecting all those little villages in the Irish uh, interior away from the coast that haven't had bus service in, in ever or in decades and getting it back out there and, and, and how the numbers were growing and it was being used. And it was a great success. We should have that in this county. Right now, you know, the way it's subsidized, we can only do buses between job centers. So we can have more people live near job centers, but, of course, that includes the lack of freedom of where people can live, right? You should be able to live in the countryside or in the in the mid areas, but, uh, you know, in the urban, urban settings are more efficient too. Less resources, more community because you're around people, but, of course, oh, we don't want to be around people. But... We don't want to be around people because we're all in competition with them. That's why usually going through for one progressive slash socialist point of you know policy is to go for all of them. Because the reason why we hate everybody is because we're competing with them. And we're all trained to hate each other that way. Or or rather, we hate each other because of this competition, because of this lane thing. You, know, you don't hate immigrants. You hate that you're competing with them for labor and for jobs. If it wasn't illegal immigrants, it would be some other population, right? If, if it wasn't people who didn't look like you, it would be with people who did like look like you. It would just be something else that you would hate about them, their face. That's quite a digression, but we're talking about 787. From all over Albany, a blog about uh, all urban issues or just general issues in the area, mostly Albany, um, they stopped, I believe, in uh, at some point. They said they would going for a decade, but they basically kind of had some posts where they were signing off. And this was written by a Sandy Johnston. I don't know if that's a pen dime or not, but this is all the way back in 2016. And I think I either saved it or it came up when I looked for 787 content. But the post, the the title of the post is "What if tearing down I-787 could actually improve traffic?" You know, the usual reactionary reaction is, "We can't tear down our highways; it would cause traffic jams." Where would how would I get in and out of Albany? Let's answer that question together. 
because it's it's such a cringe question. It's such a lack of imagination to think that's the only way you can get quickly in and out of Albany. Even though most of the traffic through the city is not via the highways. A certain amount is, especially if it's coming from far away. But if you're just coming from the surrounding suburbs, you're actually using the local roads to drive in and choking those up, killing a pedestrian on your way maybe. The future of I-787 often pops up in conversations about downtown Albany, specifically the desire that many people apparently have to see the elevated highway torn down. There's a currently long-term effort by a group of state and local agencies to study the overall topic. This was started in earnest in the summer, but it's no longer a study. It's actually the planning of it or the study for the planning. You know, it's part of the planning. And you're probably already familiar with some of the potential benefits the Tear It Down crowd touts. A boulevard replacement would reconnect the city with the waterfront. It could improve air quality, especially in some underprivileged areas, like the South End, here in the South End. And it could open considerable portions of land for development. You, know, make a, you, know, you can make some money. There's money to be made here. Argument. You always got to make that argument. got to sneak it in, no matter what it is. If it's mass transit, if it's probably, probably public health care, you know, whatever. Or education. You never do anything for its own sake, you know, to better humanity. Of course, one of the counter-arguments is that 787 is necessary to handle the large amounts of traffic that flow into Albany each weekday, and tearing it down would tip downtown into traffic gridlock. But what if it was just the opposite? What if tearing down 787 could actually make traffic in Albany flow more smoothly and efficiently? To be clear, as someone who moved here from larger cities, I am legally restricted from complaining about traffic congestion in the capital region. But that doesn't mean that it's not an occasional pain or that eliminating as many problems as possible isn't a good idea. Aside from me, that it's like driving is okay as long as the traffic is flowing okay. And, and if it's flowing okay because you added another lane, you know, for the last two years, it'll flow a little better. That's like, okay, there's nothing wrong with driving in car culture. It's efficient for me as a person, even if it is destroying our environment and our sanity or our, or our cities. Since concerns about traffic are often an excuse for not tearing down an urban freeway, perhaps I can even disprove some myths. Here's the case. So first is that the 787 is part of a network that thankfully wasn't actually finished. The first thing to remember is that 787 and its connector to the plaza, this is the Empire State Plaza, called the South Mall Arterial, are disconnected stubs of a larger freeway network that was thankfully never finished. As such, the design of the highway suffers from a few limitations, including, most prominently, limited access that requires some very loopy trips, Take, for example, the route taken by the bus system's 114 bus on its trip from Albany Rensselaer train station to downtown Albany. Um, the map is that it's, it's got this really long kind of detour. It's not just straight across the river. The exit ramps, and, and in fact, there's so many loopy exit ramps that were so, oh, just a waste of space, we were able to turn one into a skyway. Very popular now. Winning awards, getting us a claim in New Urbanist uh, Congress, I've, I've read. There's also its lack of access points helps create congestion. Since access to the freeway network is so limited, traffic jams often back up at the few entrances while other roadways sit empty. For example, as workers for the state and Albany Med leave between 4 and 5, Swan Street, 
the street that runs along the west side of the plaza, often backs up from the arterial entrance at Hudson Avenue all the way and often through the intersection with Madison Avenue two blocks away. Why? Because other options for accessing the freeway network in most directions are very limited. The Google Maps proposed alternative for northbound travel, for example, requires traveling all the way down Madison, a loop under 787, and then travel along the waterfront for several blocks before a driver can actually access the freeway at past the warehouse district. So that illustrates one of the potential advantages that tearing down Albany's urban freeways could hold for traffic, opening up numerous points, uh, numerous potential new access points to the freeway network. So if you make it a boulevard, you can have more streets that are teeing into that main road. Even a boulevard replacement for 787 and the South Mall arterial wouldn't incorporate an intersection at all these points. But surely there could would be more access than there is today, and that could be a major benefit. Here's where point 787 is drawing traffic that could be spread across other roads. Meanwhile, here's a picture that I took of Broadway in downtown Albany at rush hour last month. And it's actually where um, across from where I work. Which, yes, it doesn't have a lot of traffic going through it. Uh, even though it's a full four and a half lane. Actually, it's six lanes with two lanes of parking. So this picture nicely illustrates one of the primary lessons that ongoing research has uncovered about how urban freeways function in the broader road network. They distort traffic patterns, sucking traffic away from the grid system and toward themselves. That is perhaps the most important conclusion of research carried out primarily at the University of Connecticut by Jason Billings, first in his master's thesis, and then in a joint publication with noted transportation scholars named Norman Garrick and Nicholas Lowe's. In short, the research found that traffic impacts from freeway teardowns are typically not as severe as feared, in large part because the existing road network near a freeway often has ample capacity to absorb the spillover. An important addendum is that relatively few drivers need to switch to transit for a teardown to work, and that some trips just disappear. We see the same dynamic at effect in Albany. Drawing on Eric Fisher's stunning visualization of traffic count data for Mapbox, you'll notice that 787 and the SA, the South Mall arterial, carry, by Albany standards, large amounts, volumes of traffic, while the surface arterials seem relatively little, meaning Broadway, Pearl. Or if they are filled with cars, it's people going to the freeway. The road most closely parallel to 77 Broadway carries about uh, 6,500 cars pulled per day at its busiest point, far below what should be expected from a two- to four-lane urban boulevard, because it is pretty wide, too. South Pearl Street carries only 2,500 cars per day, a stunningly low total. This suggests that even if a surface boulevard that replaces 787 and the SMA has significantly lower capacity than it does now, and if you've ever seen Lakeshore Drive in Chicago or the West Side Highway in New York City, you know a boulevard can carry levels of traffic well higher than those 787Cs. Side note, I don't know if it mentions it, but like it's, it has record low volume for an urban freeway. It only handles about 10,000 cars at rush hour, which is just comically low for a freeway. And it was even less during COVID, of course, but that's like 10,000 even before. 
So the street grid would be well able to absorb the spillover traffic with limited resulting congestion. Redistributing, really rebalancing traffic from 787 to the surface network could even provide significant economic benefit to Albany merchants. Drivers who hop on the freeway are drivers who never see or try the wide variety of shops, restaurants, and the like potentially available on the streets of Albany. I'm not really partial to that argument. People who are driving are in their cars. They're not stopping at a, you know, uh, at a shop on a walkable street. They have to be gathered to cars if they're going to shop. And that's why anti-car policy, which gets people out of their cars, that's what's good for the merchants, which is, of course, the opposite of what they think. They think customers can only shop here if they drive here because it's the people in the suburbs with money. And that's why many businesses in Albany will move to the suburbs. It's tragic. I hate it. It's the opposite of what should be happening because we're still so car-centric. We really haven't switched our policy to be, to transform our cities away from car culture, uh, from car dependency. Every situation is also unique, though. Having spent a good chunk of the last summer researching freeway teardown projects, I can say with confidence that the main conclusion of researchers has been that the existing data set is not big enough to create an iron law of freeway teardowns though it's, that number increases all the time, and it's always positive. Each situation is unique. Often it's hard to or, or impossible to predict the exact effects of a teardown in advance. But something in common is that the teardowns happen because the freeways are underused. They have served their purpose or never did. Or they do serve their purpose of getting people in and out of the city and nothing else. However, there is also seems to be enough evidence for me to think that tearing down the urban portions of 787, emphasis on urban portions, are, and replacing them with something more modest and friendlier to an urban environment should not cause many congestion problems and may actually help Albany's traffic. So just so you know, Sandy Johnson is finishing his master's in regional planning and urban policy at UAlbany. And he blogs at the, well, it's, I'll, I'll link this in my show notes. And before moving to Albany, he lived in New Jersey. And he, well, he's moved around, actually. Anyway, but this was written in 2016. But, again, it's been a long, drawn-out process. There was a study done in, I don't know if it was the aughts, but it was like 2012 and another one done in 2016, you know, when, when new efforts were being made. And, and then there was everything this year, which was covered. I had people talk about it here. Uh, actual guests, the South, uh, sorry, the, what's it called? South End Collaborative. No, not South End. The um, Water, Albany Waterfront Collaborative. So speaking of downtown and mass transit or transportation, something that is desperately wrong with America is the lack of public inner city bus, uh, uh, inner city bus system. It's hard to believe. I guess it's not too hard to believe with our, American bravado culture, but we don't have a public inner city. It's all private. Uh, apparently, this was serviceable enough, except it sucks. Uh, no one likes it, and it's always cutting service when we need to be getting more service. Uh, the service is slow. The service is never on time. It's always a mess. And the spaces you wait for these buses are crap, rat holes. And no one likes them. 
And it's rare that you'll come across a nice one, but maybe it's because it's some intermodal system or it's an old train station or something like that. Uh, maybe the public paid for it, but it's private buses. And it's private bus. I mean, hell, the uh, was it the um, trailways, which I took last. I mean, they're, they're not even using a station. They're just, they're just parking them in a vacant lot, and they've got like a trailer as an office. It's, it, it's so bootleg. And, and this is because they were kind of kicked out of Greyhound Station. It's called that because Greyhound was renting it from some other private owner. None of it's public. It's it, it, incredible. So, you know, Amtrak's, Amtrak's public. The trains are public. And, of course, they need substantial investment. But buses don't get any, even any investment, right? It's, so, of course, intercity bus travel, which should be really dominant, because trains have their own limitations of sorts. They're, more, they're better for long distance. But if, if I want to go to Ithaca or Syracuse, you know, I want to take the bus, not the train. Well, the train could do it. But, but there's places like there's routes that are not on these main train lines because the trains are very, very limited. But I shouldn't be relegated to needing a car trip to go from one urban center to another at least. right? But, of course, the real vision is every little hamlet should have some kind of bus stop. But that only happen if it's public. Um, then we can really actually talk seriously about lack, uh, you know, getting off car dependency. And the only people that really need cars are the people that need to transport things, whether it be people or stuff. So from the Albany Business Review, downtown Albany Greyhound Station has local buyer in place. I think when we last left off this saga, I was talking about the need for a buyer. Uh, or the, I was covering, reading their articles about how it was being sold to some third party, and but it was being held while the state put in the money to study its redesign. I'm like, wait, so is the public buying it? Well, sort of, but not really. This is why, like, uh, again, like the public... It, <clears throat> neoliberal politics asserts that the, the public the municipality should never own or do anything that the private sector is currently doing. And if it does do something publicly, the private sector should be doing it. Right? That's privatization. It's horrible. It's a complete scam. It's taking something that shouldn't be a commodity or a human right. The right to move is a human right. I think inner city bus travel counts. Let's go into what's happening. Can we get a new bus station? Well, I, I think it's happening, but how it's happening is just as important. Because it also is tee up for what will happen later. It could be, you know, a retread of everything. Or it's still, I mean, it's all still in private hands at the end of the day is my issue. So uh, reported by Michael DeMazza, filed uh, November 8th. A critical first step towards eventually replacing the Greyhound bus station in downtown Albany has finally been taken. A subsidiary of Capitalize Albany Corp is under contract to buy the property at 34 Hamilton from a real estate investment and management firm. They're the last people to acquire it. And Capitalize Albany is the pseudo-private, pseudo-public entity that's basically like when the city wants to do something in the private realm, Capitalize Albany does it for them. But they were created by the city? It's so weird. But it's sort of like Mayor Sheehan's crowning jewel because it kind of allows her to do everything or the city to do kind of everything that the machine would have its 
lieutenants do through their own private businesses. So instead of a bunch of private businesses, Cavalier's Albany is at least a front of, um, you know, it's doing private business, but for the public good. Because, hey, uh, more more capitalist value is good for everybody, right? Uh, so Cavalier's Albany Corp. has been negotiating to purchase a property since it was acquired last January for 590000 by an affiliate of 20 Lake Holdings in Stamford, Connecticut. 20 Lake Holdings bought a large portfolio of Greyhound stations, including Albany's, in December of 2022 for about $140 million. That's for all of them. So this is a big deal happening. And because uh, Greyhound didn't own them, though they were called Greyhound stations, they were renting them from some other big real estate conglomerate. So, yeah, same as it was, I guess. Man, and, and that building, I don't, half a million? No, no, I guess that's a fair price for it. Considering that, like, most, like, nice houses are, like, 300 grand. Uh, well, I can complain about the price of everything. So it's unclear how many stations have been put up for sale or sold by 20 Lake Holdings since then. The company didn't return a message seeking comment. Or none time. Greyhound has remained a tenant in the Albany building, which has long been considered an embarrassment in the state capitol because of its rundown appearance. Right. I mean, it's a privately owned rat trap. <laughs> it's not just the modern architecture, okay? It could be nice and be a modern build, a modernist building. But it was probably built as a, in a modernist style. But it's, it's a standard, like uh, in the 70s, you know, my teachers would call that the dark age of architecture. It's like everything in the 70s was terrible. Uh, even, even by, because it was like you had higher modernism in the 50s and 60s. And then you had the 70s, which was just drac. And then you, you don't get postmodernism styles until the 80s. Just like how disco was like the in-between of music, pop music. Cavalier's Albany Corps president, Sarah Regelli, said the conversations have been productive and confirmed a contract will be signed between them and Liberty Square Development LLC, which is their subsidiary. She said she couldn't disclose any details, such as the price, terms, or anticipated closing date. And by the way, I think I mentioned before that all the other properties being collect- that were collected by the county in the parking lot district are also being transferred or bought by the subsidiary Liberty Square development. So it's like a private, yeah, it's a private company. That's a, a subsidiary of Capitalized Albany, which is a, or a corporation. As the corporation is the standard social unit of our society. She said she couldn't disclose any other details, such as the price, terms, or anticipated closing date. The purchase would be paid out in roughly of the roughly $15 million in state grants that were awarded several years ago to redevelop the parking lots and abandoned buildings near the station, an area city officials have dubbed Liberty Park. They're calling it the new, it's like the new neighborhood. And when it's put in the uh, downtown, like, development, like the bids visioning plan, it, like, that's where, like, my first thought looking at it was, like, this looks like Disneyland because you have, like, Liberty Square and... They called the warehouse district the New Frontier, and and its state is like Main Street, USA, leading up to Cinderella's Castle, aka the Capitol. It was just oh, we have a castle at one end of it at the SUNY building, 
So it's just like this looks like they're making the downtown into Disneyland. I mean, I guess it worked for Midtown Manhattan. You Disneyfy everything. Because Liberty Square actually was a unbuilt or un in the original Disneyland, you know, a uh, a Boston themed uh, Liberty uh, Revolutionary War type of thing, and it became Presidential Hall. That was like one of its attractions, but they they didn't build it; they just took one of the attractions. That's what they had the money for, because you know, the mid-century Disney—they're actually kind of poor. <laughs> they weren't as big as they are now. Currently, we're focused on getting site control, she added. That's the necessary first step to anything moving forward. Oh, yeah. So the goal is to remediate the blight of 34 Hamilton, and the likely outcome will be the demolition of that facility, Regali said. That makes me sad. I'd rather see a renovation that makes modern architecture fulfill its potential uh, instead of the, you know, just destroy it, tear it down. Of course, what you know, the facility they'll build, replace it with, it will also be a modernist glass box. It's not like it will be – well, actually, no, I don't want to speak till soon. But I'm not going to hold my breath for some neoclassical piece. It's probably going to look like any of the new kind of bus stations or things that pop, pop up around, which it's just a postmodernist box. You know, just you could renovate a modernist box into a postmodernist one, right? Like, like the facades of the Albany Public Library. You can think about that. So Regelli, who has spent several time and effort on Liberty Park over the years, won't be there to see the process through. She's announced last month she's resigning as president November 17th to become vice president of development at Cass Hill Development in Latham. Ooh, moving up, I guess. Uh, moving out? Uh, senior Vice President Ashley Mull will serve as interim president. There's much to sort out before the bus station walls come tumbling down. Primarily, where will Greyhound pick up and drop off passengers? Well, Trailways is doing it in adjacent lot, uh, one of the many parking lots of the parking lot district. I guess they could do the same. What's the difference? Except it would be completely outside. You know, it's screw you if you're if it's raining. I mean, you have the bus plus uh, station there. I guess yeah. I guess people can wait under the arterial. Selma Arterial's there. It's a big roof. One potential scenario is about a block away, where competitor Trailways of New York rented trailers for a temporary station after its nearly 25-year partnership of Greyhound bus lines ended in summer of 2022. I was covering that in the summer. So I refer back to, you know, a few episodes back. I mean, only, this is only number 28. So longer-term the replacement could be a new transit center and garage on the property. A feasibility study released last year by the Albany Planning Authority and Capital District Transportation Authority, CTA, estimated it would cost about 82 mil to build such facilities. Matt Peter, executive director of the Parking Authority, said no funding could be pursued from the state or Fed to build the transit center until the site is owned by what he called a cooperating entity. So these real estate firms in Connecticut, not so cooperative. That's not a shot at the current owners, but obviously it's hard to plan a public project when the property is privately controlled. Although if it's owned by an LLC, is, it, is that solving it? Well, it's an LLC that's under city governance, I guess, somehow. I, I'll have to look into that, but again, I'm, I'm not going to do it on this show. I'm wrapping up, unfortunately. 
Oh, you know what? I'm moving my, to TikTok, so maybe I'll put that on my list of things to look up and just give the short version of TikTok. How does Capitalize Albany work? And how would I start a competing Socialize Albany? Or Cooperative Albany? Uh, under the model of uh, Cooperative Jackson. Look it up. To be able to improve the property condition is the first step to being able to do anything at scale the region would like to see. You know, I, I'm definitely a, of a mind of like, you know, if you want something done right, we need to do it ourselves. If we want a efficient, workable, serving the citizenry, something that the citizens need, it needs to be done by the public. We need to reverse the neoliberal trend of austerity and, well, we can't afford it. That would require raising taxes or, well, changing the relationship to the means of production, I suppose. And that's the big, you know, task at hand for a socialist like me, changing the way who owns the means of production. If it's in private hands, then it needs to be a private bus system. And it's only going to serve X amount of routes. And it's kind of strange. Well, again. If you are capitalist-minded, you drive a car or you buy a limousine. The bus system is for the people left over, and so they get what they deserve. You know, they, they yeah, that that's that's the ugly mindset of the you know, conservatives. So that's that story. Not not a complete capstone, but it does. Uh, I think a lot of the questions in the future of the site are now answered. I think there's a, there's a now a full road ahead of things that where unless something terribly goes wrong, that is what's going to happen. But it will be interesting that uh, if, if it is a transportation center that is in part managed by CETA, then it is a municipal entity, and, and maybe the LLC was needed to buy it from another LLC, uh, another corporation, and then uh, Liberty Square LLC will be renting it to or for a dollar to CTA or renting it at all to and they'll be renting it to Greyhound and Trailways uh as tenants. Uh that be that can be revenue for it, I guess. But again, that's still intercity private, you know, private intercity bus transport, which just it's just so bad. It's so bad. It's not it's not getting better. You say, Oh well if it's publicly you know, it'll just get worse. No, it can't get worse. They're cutting service. Like um uh, it was on YouTube, there are several transit-oriented channels that are a lot of fun. One is called Miles Rides Transit. Just a kooky guy from New York City who just rides lo mostly local transit. So he does these long routes. He kind of tries to find, like, what's the longest route I can do just using local transit? And, and like, what are the experience of doing this, of transferring, like, 20 times to basically go from one city to another? And it's usually around the New York or the Beltway areas, of course. So he did this thing where he took North Metro to the last stop in Connecticut, or rather to do a big loop, to go to the southern, the last eastern tip of Suffolk County in Long Island and take only local buses back to Long Island Railroad to basically do a 10, it was a 10-hour transfer. The, the idea was to be to start in Grand Central and go from one platform to go to the platform under it, because you see, if you because one platform will be North Metro going uh, to Connecticut, and then one will be Long Island Railroad coming in, and so it's like, can I do? You know, and it took ten hours. 
<laughs> and, and, and it kept the I missed a bus uh, or a bus was late or something, you know, or it took too long getting off the ferry because the cars are let off first. I figure it'll take me enough time to do this one. So, so okay. From Also from the Albany Business Review. Albany County could require businesses to post salaries. Here's what owners think about that. Well, what about the job seekers? They would love it. I guess we're assuming that. So, Because one of the things complaining about job hunting or trapping is you have people posting jobs and they won't say what they're going to pay. Can I pay my rent with this? Oh, well, if you have to ask, you know, it's, it's like buying something. Like, well, if you have to ask what it costs, <laughs> you can't afford it. And it's like, well, if you have to ask what's going to be paid, then you're not going to be motivated. You're motivated by money? I want a I I motivated go-getter that, you know, isn't motivated by money. Are you not motivated by money? You own the business. Do it for the love of the game, huh? Oh, in that case, why don't you share ownership with me? Make it a co-op. Filed by Chelsea D- Dino, written May 11th of 2022. So this was... So there's probably an update on this, uh, unfortunately. So, but let, let's let's just cover this as a topic. Businesses have mixed feelings about a new proposed law in Albany County that could require companies with operations there uh, in Albany County to publish salary ranges on job ads. It's part of a nationwide trend of cities, counties, and some states creating laws requiring employers to provide that information either with the job posting or in the first interview. In New York, laws have been passed in Tompkins County, where Ithaca is located, and in New York City. The New York City law requires employers with four or more employees to include the annual salary or hourly wage range in the position. Albany County's laws would be similar. The proposed bill would amend the county's human rights law to require employers to post an open job's minimum and maximum salary or hourly wage. The legislation, which was introduced Monday night, is intended, well, you know, speaking Monday night back in 2022, is intended to improve pay equity among racial, gender, and age lines. I mean, it kind of does, but it, I, I would I would also, it's like, this is, this is literally a drop in the pot of social inequities, just to say, like, don't lie to people applying or to lie by omission. I don't think it does anything about what the salaries would be, but I suppose, no, there, there are ways that the employers stiff people by lying about what the salary requirements would be or uh, what they're offering. You know, they say they offer one thing and they're actually, oh, no, no, that wasn't the real thing. Or they don't say if no, actually, yeah, yeah. If people wouldn't take these bad jobs, right, these underpaying jobs, if they knew that they wouldn't be able to pay the rent with it. Uh, and that somehow assumes that there's a buyer's market here. Uh, sorry, a seller's market, seller of labor, the worker, where they have some power. But, of course, what really gives them power is the ability to say no. And as long as we don't have a basic uh, social, uh, sorry, uh, economic floor, socially provided would need to be, there is no ability to say no. It's sort of interesting that there's there's definitely a political divide in the polarization, and it's not usually sold this way. Another way you can divide people's social views is what they feel the conditions of adulthood, being a functioning adult in society are. I would say, like, my minimum, uh, if I am to judge people, which I 
don't want to, but if I would, sometimes I do. It's education level, you know, high school graduate, something like that. Because uh, even because it's definitely a state where if you get your GED, you've removed the stigma. Others, of course, would say you need a job. If you're not working, you're not a real adult. You know, you're just still you're still a kid. Only kids don't work. Of course, if they had their way, they would want kids working too, because obviously they want them to be a full adult um, by 13. You know, they should be working, ready to join the workforce, be a productive member of society, as they say. And the stigma is on people who are unemployed or not employed or underemployed or work the hours they want or, you know, I live the life they want to live. Oh, they're just a deadbeat, lazy bump. Not a real person to me. Not the standard I have, of course. I don't think the purpose of living is working. Obviously, it's important to provide the means of substance and pleasure. But if between automation, industrialization, and the fourth industrial revolution, that's not really a hard thing anymore. It's not. Especially if there's a difference between the job and work and doing chores, like growing food and 3D printing things and all the things that you can do to cut Walmart out, which a cooperative Albany would seek to do. And Cooperative Jackson is working at doing in Jackson, Mississippi. I, I just started this quoting. This addition to the human rights law would help everyone get paid based on the job they are applying for rather than on prior salary. Simply requiring pay information in a job listing will help alleviate discrimination based on age, gender, and race says Vicky Plonsky, one of the legislators who introduced it. Guy Busey, co-owner and chief executive officer of Innova Bed and Mixed Breed Brewing in Girland, said he's relatively indifferent to the law. He can see benefits for manufacturers like his company, as well as some pitfalls. Innova Bed has around 80 employees that manufacture space-saving furniture. Oh, oh, Innova Bed. Was I saying that right? But and mixed breed brewing, so he has a mattress store and a brewery. <laughs> Makes beer and beds. Well, I guess you drink enough beer, you need that bed. He can see benefits from manufacturers, but also pitfalls. Okay, so let's see. Busey said they're down from 110 employees before the pandemic and could hire tomorrow close to 25 wood finishers, machine operators, and furniture assemblers roles. So in Gilderland, there was actual manufacturing. Who knew? Recruiting while retaining current employees has been... I've never heard of them, though. Why Why don't I see their stuff in every furniture store I ever... Like, I don't I don't go often, but like, I think if I walk into Huck Finn's, I should see... I've heard of this Innova bed. I have not. Um, I guess they're the type where you just buy from them and they sell online and Recruiting while retaining current employees has been tough. The company already has a salary range it sticks to for an employee. Quote, there are plenty of people really good at the position they are applying for, but wanted more than the range we were providing at the time. Well, no, duh. I mean, inflation, 40% inflation. Have you increased your salary range 40%? Maybe you're all underpaying all your people currently. Why, you know, <laughs> they're just locked in because they got the job. Uh, they wouldn't meet that range because we didn't want to be unfair to employees. We can't raise, <laughs> we 
we can't hire any new people because they need they need more pay. And but we can't raise it for them because then we'd have to raise it for everyone. Sounds like you're a cheapskate to me. Or a good capitalist. Same difference. You know, if you're a capitalist, Scrooge is a hero. Dickens was not a capitalist. Fun fact, I mean, it is post-Christmas, but not like, it is kind of, I mean, we're a week out now, but I uh, haven't done a chef since. And uh, I was watching the, uh, it was uh, on Amazon Prime, I had access to it for a brief moment, not something I pay for. Um, it was The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it's Charles Dickens writing A Christmas Carol. And it's a dramatization of that, he sees like apparitions, hallucinations, this is imagination. And it was a lot, it was a bit of fun. A little cringy at times, but I, I, it got me wondering, like, wait, is this how based on a real events is this? Like, it, he keeps having these, like, this trauma from being a child worker, painting boots. And I looked, at least from the Wikipedia article, didn't do the deep dive, but he did. He was, for five years, out of school, working in a factory. So, like, the whole... He wrote about, you know, the he wrote about what, you know, when you write Oliver Twist, it's, he's writing from his own experience of being in a boot polishing factory or painting, whatever it was, as a child worker. <laughs> because, you know, oh, because his father was put in debt prison. So he really hated debtor's prison, and he really hated child labor. <laughs> so that was his main uh, causes in life. So we're getting into that. Uh, so Busey, people would start comparing paychecks instead of doing their job. Oh, you never want your workers comparing paychecks. By the way, first work, uh, uh, first tip of like union organizing is to just ask people about what they're paid, especially at a company where everyone is not paid the same. You start comparing your salaries and what you're paid. Like, hey, why are you being paid this? What? Oh, women are being paid less here. There is sexism. Maybe we have a claim uh, to go to the Department of Labor for this. You know, you start asking questions. Oh, you make trouble. Oh, we don't want to make trouble. We don't want to lose a job. But think of what you could gain. Justice, dignity, moving beyond the relationship of being a wage slave. From, you know, and all this guy, the BBC cares about is people doing their job, right? Workers doing their job. From an employer standpoint, this law gets rid of rumor mills and all that. Everyone knows where they stand and what they're making. Well, going into the job, right? So you're saying they don't – so I guess I, I guess this isn't just about people applying for a job. It's so that people actually know what their salary range is when they're working at a place. I didn't even know that was a thing, but you're talking to someone who is – I've only worked in two kinds of jobs, minimum wage hourly and civil service. So I have a lack of experience in those abuses, mostly because I wanted to avoid them. Katrin Zeman worries the salary transparency requirement would cause tension within the company. We're a big team. We're a family. That's what they say. We're a family here. We're a pizza party. Zeman and her husband, Devin, own three restaurants with a fourth in development. Oh, the restaurant owners. Won't someone think of the poor restaurant owners? They own the Cuckoo's Nest, which they're closing, and Crave in Albany, and the Nest and Miller Restaurant and Bar in Schenectady. I have torn feelings about it, Simmons said. It can put you in a bad situation where, for example, you hire an assistant manager at 40 k a year. A few months later, 
you find another job posting out that you need another manager with more experience. And their experience and what they bring to the table impacts what I can pay them, she added. Let's say the job is 55 to 80 grand. The other assistant manager may see that and feel bad and like they bring less to the table. It could cause a downward, a downside for business owners. Are you freaking kidding me with this? Siemens said the restaurants pay employees well, which is why they have people who have stayed with them for years. But more goes into the hiring process and why certain people get paid certain amounts. Yeah, like, you know, if you're friends or if you chum up or if you make sure you say, oh, I'm anti-union. No, no trouble for me. You get that extra steak, those extra pork chops. <laughs> Sorry, that goes from a total... That is not... That is an obscure reference, but um, the beginning of, of black pimping was in slavery, in antebellum slavery, where the husband would get an extra pork chop by providing his wife. It was it was black academic who was writing it. Okay, I I could see how it would cause everyone to make more money, but that could also lead to some businesses closing too. There's a trickle effect, Seaman said. It's tough when you see certain people make a certain amount because it could cause resentment within an organization too. Why? It might even cause class consciousness. Nothing conscious about this. These a lot of these business owners, I could say, it's, these petite bourgeois. Each job is so specific to someone's past experience and what they bring to the table. Busey compares the pay transparency proposal to working for the public sector as a police officer, firefighter, or any taxpayer-funded job that comes with salaries posted online. It's common knowledge, and you can go online and see what someone has paid, Busey said. But at the same time, by doing so, we're minimizing the potential people coming into those fields. For example, someone going to law school with high ambitions, knowing what they'll make at the state, they'll bypass that. What this guy doesn't know is that 70% of Albany Law graduates aren't working at all. Salary is irrelevant. They are working at Starbucks or finding employment in some other way. And he wrote worries that in an already tough job market, oh, it's already tough again. You know, it's, we had that, you know, this that brief moment of freedom in the pandemic. But now it's all, it's tough again. You've got to, you know, you've got to think about your place in the job market. Particularly for filling manufacturing jobs, his company will lose opportunities for good candidates because they'll be pigeonholed for having a specific salary without letting the potential hire negotiate. This is a standard tactic, by the way. Oh, if you unionize, you won't be in control. Don't you want control by negotiating with me, the person who has all the power in the relationship? So, I'm, I'm, obviously, this is the business review. They're asking the business owners. This is a this is reporting for businesses by businesses. You know, it's if there was a socialist paper, we'd be covering. We'd be if I was doing my journalistic duty, I would be talking to people applying for jobs or blue collar workers who are looking for work or the unemployed, and ask what are some of the barriers to you getting a job. I mean, and they basically wouldn't have too much to say because these chotes will be you know giving them the runaround. Ghost uh, potentials, you know, when, if you ask for what you want, you're going to be paid. You ask for that salary range, they'll just not call you back. So that's one of the reasons for this uh, this legislation as well.
it's a fine line between government regulating business and business regulating business, Busey said. How far do we want government to regulate business as a private company who has no public aspect to it? Which is basically to 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 completely. Um, I mean, this is this is the capitalist mindset, the petty, the bourgeois ideology, which is which is the baseline of all ideology in in America. You are, you know, you do have an ideology, even if you don't think you have like a specific worldview. I'm not brainwashed. You kind of are, a little bit. You know, if 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 you think that this is normal talk here, oh, you know, what you know, what business is the, is the public welfare, whether there are people hiring fairly or not, whether people have good paying jobs or not. So either you regulate private entities so that people are profiting and making money on their own, well, for their own individual purposes, good capitalists, to the point where people are provided for and there's an economic floor of some kind, or to me, the community slash the public provides it themselves in some form. For more on that, you know, look into the Three Left Show where I talk about all the different alternative economic projects. So uh, I'm going to end. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a time. That has been this week's program. Please contact me to leave feedback or to get in contact with me. I am now semi-officially the chair of the um, Albany County Green Party. So please get involved with that. I encourage everyone, or if you just want to learn more, I will answer any question, no matter how uh, base or profane <laughs> or, or hostile. Support the show with word of mouth. Uh, but anyway, I still have content that, that is shareable and valuable. So support the show with word of mouth. Leave a review. Uh, share my shows, The Three Left Show and this, which is What's Left in Albany. Uh, it's found on Facebook, Mastodon, my the Gmail I'm using to contact me is three lefts show at Gmail. But, you know, contacting me via the Facebook is the most efficient way. I also have a, a Discord, uh, which you know, I can invite you to as well. Uh, support with dollars, Patreon or LibrePay. Just search for the say, uh, show name. Go to those sites. Uh, you can search for the show name and find me on any podcast or music app like uh, iTunes, Spotify, or the like. The full archive of episodes for both of these programs is at www.3lefts.news. The Three Left Show is my prior program where I discuss the leftist theory, strategies, and practice for a better politics and system change. So last, I want to wish all well, encourage all listening to vote sometime every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in Albany. Don't mean fuck, we're a little subcock When the cops knock, knock for probation Please I never
escape consent. We only live our lives and we can only. 